theyeshiva.net. Tonight, we are going to explore the purpose of creation, the purpose of existence. So we will explore this theme, which is of course a very loaded theme, a very heavy theme, a very important theme. And I don't think we'll be able to finish this week, but God willing, we will continue on this theme next week as well, in our sheer next Thursday night, 8.30, the last one before Shavuos. So let's at least begin the process. The question, is there meaning to life? What's the purpose of existence? Why are we here? Why were we created? What's the purpose of creation? Of course, by definition, needs to rely on a few premises. Without these premises, you don't have a question. The first premise in order to ask such a question is that the world has a beginning. Time has a beginning. In other words, it was created. Now the question could be why it was created. The second premise that we have to assume in order to ask this question is that it was created with a consciousness. It was created by someone who created it with intent, with purpose, with consciousness, with design. In other words, there's a meaning behind the creation. So we have to assume that the creation has a beginning. The world has a beginning, which interestingly, till last century, many secular philosophers embraced the model of Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, in the Rambam's words, that the world is a kadmon. The universe was always here. If it was always here, you don't have to ask why it was here. It was never not here. This was common philosophy based on Aristotle. Last century it was all transformed because today the concept of the Big Bang is embraced by almost every self-respected scientist, which basically, however you want to discuss the theological implications, just means one thing. The world has a beginning. There is a beginning, there's a point. Whatever that beginning is, they say 15.3 billion years, whatever your beginning is, I'm not discussing that in this class. It's another class, another discussion. But it has a beginning. If it has a beginning, now the question is, how did the beginning come about? Or tonight we're exploring not how, but why did the beginning come about? And this beginning, you have to assume, did not come about randomly, by mistake, by error. There was just a big bang. Then you can't ask a question about meaning. You have to assume there was intent, there was kavana, there was purpose. There was a conscious living God as Judaism believes, Bereshis Bara Eloikim as Hashemayim Basaritz. You remember that Pasuk? In the beginning, the beginning, in the beginning, Eloikim, Hashem created heaven and earth. So the question is, why? I grew up in a neighborhood where there was a seasoned alcoholic. He's already on the Oil of We called him Reb Zalman the Shikr. He was actually a very talented fellow, a smart man. But he went through something heavy in life, and he... Uh, as they say in Yiddish. The bottle became his... Uh, his refuge. 
So he would drink a lot. And he would sit and lie on one of those benches on the island of Eastern Parkway, if you know Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. But he would sometimes say very interesting and intelligent things. <laughs> so he once said as follows, he said, he said, I like the best the first Rashi and Chumash. And only a real shik, only a real alcoholic can, can really say such a vart, you know. He said, the first Pasuk says, In the beginning God created heaven and earth. If you look at the first Rashi, what does Rashi say? Amr Reb Yitzchak. The Torah should have not began from here. It should have began from somewhere else. The Torah didn't have to begin from here. He said, I'll tell you how you have to read this Rashi. In the beginning God created the world. So Rashi says, Amr Reb Yitzchak. There was really no need for this. We could have avoided lots and lots of migraines. <laughs> Among other problems, if there would have been a plan B for this Elikim. You know, Golda Meir once said, uh, if Moshe would have only made a right instead of a left, we could have had some oil and our economy problem would be solved. Why did he have to choose to make a left? So, Amr Yitzchak, There was no need. But uh, this is the premise behind this question. And it's interesting, both of these premises, A, that there's a beginning, and B, that the beginning happened with purpose, although for centuries and millennia this has been debated quite heavily, both of these premises, the more science and physics progresses, and the more the universe opens up to us through all of the incredible developments in physics and science and technology, especially over the last half a century and century, both of these premises which demand an answer to this question, what is the matara, what is the purpose of existence, are constantly being validated more and more. A, that there's a beginning, the Big Bang, and B, the more we study the universe, the more we are not just amazed, but flabbergasted, astounded, by the extraordinary, meticulous design and precision of so many nuances and details in the cosmos that to assume that it all happened randomly, as a coincidence, by chance, as an error, requires more faith than the assumption that there is a conscious being who created it. It takes much more emuna. <laughs> takes today much more amuna, much more blind faith to come up with theories that justify how so many things, not just so many things, how an extraordinary amount of details have happened to coincide and fall in place and come together to allow the conditions for the existence of the universe and life on our planet, that it is literally beyond mind-staggering. We started to address this particular topic, I think, in class number uh, five, Amuna number five, and this particular topic we're going to address in future classes because of the many questions on this issue about the design of the universe, the existence of God, but it's not our topic tonight. All I'm saying is that the two prerequisites to ask these questions are more and more being vindicated and embraced enthusiastically not just by men and women of faith, but by people who want to explore the universe 
from what you, what you would call a scientific point of view. So now, let's come to this question. The world has a beginning. And this beginning happened by design. In other words, by a conscious, intelligent creator. And the question is, why? If loy hayatzarich, why? By the way, I should just say that Zeb Zalman wasn't so far off. There's a Gemara in Erevin, where's a Dafyud Gimel in Erevin, two and a half years, Beishamah and Beisil argued about this, right? If Noyach loy liyadam shaloy nivre, yoysim nivre or not, would have it been better or easier for man to have been created or not to have been created? And they argued about this for two and a half years. That's a long time. That's a pretty long time for Jews to argue about something. Non-stop they argued. Nimnu v'gamru, they took a vote. And you know what the vote said? You know what the solution was? The verdict was, Would have been much better if we weren't created. In other words. So it's not so simple. Nimnu v'gamru. Okay, it's a strange piece of Gemara. What's this? They're making a vote. It would have been better. God decided you should be created. And we're taking a vote. And we're like, no. That's also an interesting, uh, an interesting issue. Elie Wiesel once told the story that in one of the ghettos, the Jews who were suffering so terribly decided that they're going to take the Rebbein Shalom to a Dintaira. They're going to take him for a court case. And they put up a Dayan and they put up a Bezdin. And they said, we're summoning Hashem for a court case for Dintaira. And one of them represented the case of the Jews, and one of them spoke up for God, and everybody was presenting the case for the Jews, the case for God, and so on and so forth. And now came the time to vote. And they all voted, of course, that the Jews are right. God has to ask them forgiveness, this is unfair. And as they're discussing this psaq, one of them gave a scream, he said, okay, genug shayt, mincha. mincha. So, Nimnu v'gamru noach le'ladam shaloyed nivre yoysim shenivre, and now it's time to dava mincha, or I should say ma'irif. Now, the question is really a very large question. It's a very big question. And the reason it's a question is, let's think about ourselves. Why do we create something? We also create things. We don't create things as impressive and large as the universe, or even planet Earth, but we also create things. Some of us create iPhones, some of us create tissue boxes, some of us create bottles for water, and some of us create design suits, some of us create ideas, and some of us create novels and plays, some of us create words, and some of us build buildings. We create, some of us create Shalant and Kugel and Kishka, and some of us create uh, a good salad, a nice Caesar salad. We create things. Why do we create? And the answer is, everybody creates for different reasons, but there's a common denominator. There is a need. The creations that we create serve a need. Whether it's a need to make an income to make money, whether it's a need to enhance our lives, whether it's a need because it will give us more pleasure or more comfort or an easier lifestyle or a more enjoyable lifestyle, whether it is a real need or an illusionary need, whether it's an authentic need or an imaginary need, that's not irrelevant. But the fact is, at least in our mind, it's a need, and we create these needs. We create things in order to satisfy these needs. So now we ask a question. Why did God create the universe? 
The very question is problematic. When you say why he created a universe, it means you are assuming that the universe did something. You say, why did you go shopping today? Why are you eating what you shouldn't be eating? Why are you doing this? Why didn't you go to school today? Why are you engaged in this? Why did you take this job? And then you give an answer. But we're assuming that there's something you're searching for. There's something you need, and that's why we can ask this question, and we're looking for an answer. But the way Judaism, Torah describes Hashem, by definition, as being perfect, as being shalim, as being wholesome. What does perfect mean? Perfect means He doesn't lack anything. Perfect means no faults, no needs. Everything is there. If something is not there, if there's a flaw, if there's a void, if there's something lacking... It's not perfect. Not only everything uh, we can imagine, in our imagination, which would mean perfect wisdom, ultimate knowledge, ultimate creativity, ultimate power, ultimate beauty, ultimate success, ultimate perfection, but even that which we can't imagine, because it's not part of our universe, that's also included in His perfection. Purpose, on the other hand, when you say, there's a purpose to something, I'm doing this because there's a purpose, it implies that there is a deficiency craving compensation. There is a void I'm trying to fill. That's what purpose means. There's something missing, and this thing is providing a purpose, something beneficial to me. Why did you come to the Shia tonight? Why did you come to the Shia tonight? Some of you, because there's food here. I'm talking about this side of the, this side of the mechitza. <laughs> Some of you, because the alternative was cooking. I'm talking about that side of the mechitza. Some of you came, I don't know how many, because you actually want to hear what I have to say. Anybody? Yes? Okay, I'm glad. Uh, but the common denominator, some of you... One here on this side. Huh? Okay, okay. I doubt it, but fine. Especially from your position, where you're standing. You're in the most strategic place in terms of the food, so. <laughs> I'm just joking. And some people, it was just a good excuse to get out of the house, you know. It's a great excuse. Where are you going? Rabbi Yy, yeah? Okay, if you repeat the jokes, you're allowed to go. But there's a common denominator in all these answers. Humorous is sincere. And that is, there's a need. You're hungry for some healthy egg rolls. That's a need. You're hungry, at least you think you're hungry. You're hungry for information. You're seeking inspiration. You're looking for camaraderie. You don't like being in your house. There's a needs. All purpose represents that there's a need because there's a deficiency. Nobody is perfect. We need other people. We need other events. We need other phenomena in order to make our lives better off. We create medicine. We create physicians. We search for knowledge. We experiment. We create technology. We look for inventions. Why? One reason. To enhance life. I don't have this. How can I get it? So I lack food. I eat. I lack shelter. I buy a house. I lack love. I get into a relationship, which sometimes helps. 
They once asked a woman how your marriage is. She said, before I got married, they told me I was incomplete. So I got married and now I'm finished. (laughs) So eating, building a house, designing a house, renovating a house, good luck. Human relationships, they all have purpose because they serve a need. But God is not hungry. He doesn't have to worry about getting wet in the rain. So he doesn't have to invent umbrellas or build homes. He can do just fine without getting into a relationship. He did just fine. He's the perfect bachelor. Impeccable. Flawless. He's perfect. That's what makes him God and me not God. That's exactly why the question is, who created Hashem? Right, everybody? Who created him? Okay, he created the world and who created him? By definition, we're talking about a type of reality that need not be created. It's a type of reality that transcends the need to be created. We'll talk about it one day. It's called a mechuy of hametzias, a necessary reality, the intrinsic reality, the essence of reality. So if God needs nothing, by definition, why does he need a world? So you'll tell me he doesn't need a world. Okay, so why did he do it? Because he needs a world. No, he doesn't. So why did he do it? Because he was bored? So perfect gods become bored, and he was looking to fill his boredom. That's a need. People are bored, they do a lot of things. They play games, they get addicted to stuff. People, that's a need. We're bored, we don't like being bored. We don't like being depressed, we don't like being lonely. What exactly is behind the creation of the world? On this, Jewish thinkers and philosophers, which are the views I'm going to present, Be'ezer Hashem, have different perspectives. And if you'll read through all the works of the great rabbis, the great sages, the great Chaykri Yisrael, the philosophers throughout Jewish history, when this question has been addressed, you will see different presentations given. More or less, I say more or less, a lot of the answers could be fit into two general categories. One is for his sake, one is for our sake. Both have to be explained, we'll address it. But generally speaking, specifically there are many nuances and many sub-details here. But generally speaking, many of the answers, I would say most of them, in Svarim that I will soon mention, the fundamental Svarim of Machshava, of Hashkofa, of Nister, of, uh, of Jewish philosophy... You could categorize their answers into two groups. For him and for us. Let's talk about for him. This is the famous answer postulated in one of the most important sources of Jewish thought in Teres Hanister, the Sefer HaZoyar. The book of the Zoyar. In Parshas Boy, there's a whole shtickle there about the purpose of creation. And it's summarized, I'll summarize it in three words, in the words of the Zohar in Aramaic. Begin the Yishtamoydunloi. He created the world in order that he should be known. We should know him, he should be known. Or the Arizal in his Sefer Eitz Chayim, which is one of the most fundamental texts of Kabbalah like the Zohar, Darizal's Eitz Chaim was written by his student, Reb Chaim Vital. 
Now the Zoyar is attributed to Reb Shimon Bayechai. So you're dealing with the second century after the Common Era, even though it was just publicized and revealed much later, in the 1300s. Dariza lived in the 15th century, in the 16th century, passed away, Shin Lamed Beis, approximately 1572, right? Hayov, just like Rashbi Lagboimer. And his, his student, Abchayim Vital, came to Tzvas to learn from Darizal for two years. Darizal passed away very young at the age of 36. And he wrote the Sefer Eitzchayim. Eitzchayim, right in the beginning of Eitzchayim, he quotes his Rebbe Darizal, where he asks what the purpose of creation is. And again, he gives a long presentation, similar to the Zoyer and Parshish boy, which he quotes. And again, I'll summarize it in his three words, quote, Sheyizgalu Shleimus Kaychaisov. The perfection of his faculties should be actualized. What is the meaning of this? The meaning that the Zoyar and Reb Chaim Vital, the Arizal explaining Eitz Chaim is, perhaps we can, I'll say it in my own words, perhaps we can define God as an artist. <coughs> and it's quite an impressive piece of art. And here's the question. Do artists need their art? What do you think? Any artist here? Do artists need their art? Or do we need their art? So you'll ask any real authentic artist, and he says, of course I need my art. I need to express myself. I need to actualize myself. I need to somehow allow my inner fire, my inner genius, my inner creativity to emerge, to come out. It's a natural state of my reality. In fact, you have artists who for years produced brilliant paintings, but they died in absolute poverty. And then hundreds of years later, or after they die, their art is discovered, and suddenly it's sold for millions of dollars. They couldn't sell their art for a dollar. The artist, of course he needs his art. He needs his art because this is how he expresses himself. It seems like the Zoya and the Arizal are saying, the Arizal says this, Without creation, all of Hashem's koiches, all of Hashem's faculties, all of His names, Rachum, Chanun, Rav Chesed, Emes, Chacham, Maven, Das, all His, all his kinuyim, all of His names, all of His nicknames, all of His faculties, all of His creative powers, all of His wisdom, where would it be? It would be latent, it would be dormant, it would be suppressed, I'm not suppressed, submerged in Him. Creation was therefore natural. It should all come out. It should all be expressed and actualized in creation. This is how the Zoyer and Reb Chaim Vital explain it. In other words, in other words, this is a natural state. Of course he's perfect. But where does the perfection come out? How is the perfection actualized? Through creation. Just like the artist the musical genius writes the music because it's in him and naturally it comes out from him and the artist draws the paintings to express himself and the same with the architect and the writer, etc. Hashem builds his piece of art, which is the world. Now, this, however, creates a lot more questions. <laughs> it's an interesting insight. creates a lot more questions because... Who need, huh? Exactly. Here we come again. Is he perfect or is he not perfect? I'm an artist, I get frustrated. I have this fire in my belly and I got to express it. 
They say that the Cossacks once came in the night of Yom Kippur and they captured the rabbi and the gabbai and the chazan and the president. They took him to the forest and said, I'm going to shoot you all. But we're mentioned, we're decent people, so we'll grant you your final wish. What's your final wish? So the rabbi said, listen, all year I prepare my Yom Kippur sermon. You can't kill me before I get it out of my chest. Let me finish my sermon and then you could shoot me. Okay. Chazan, what's your final request? He says, oh yeah, I prepare my melodies for Yom Kippur. You can't shoot me before I get out my melodies. Let me up kol nidre, with anasana toikif, with avatir rabbi shmol, and then you'll shoot me. They turn to the president and they say, what's your last wish? He says, kill me first. Okay. So people, people are frustrated. There's a deficiency. Yes, I need to express myself. <laughs> I need to do it. Why? There's a deficiency. There's a void. There's something missing. But again, if God is perfect, why the need for this? Or to quote the words of Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, the Rebbe of the Arizal, who passed away two years earlier, 1570, Chav Gimel Thomas, also in Svas, known as the Amak. And he has an expression in the Sefer, Pardus Remoinim, the Orchard of Pomegranates. By the divine, potential does not lack actualization. In our world, it's two states of reality. There's potential and there's actualization. And whenever you say about a bacher, he has great potential. <laughs> right? When a matchmaker says she has great potential, you know, okay, potential. Now let's find out about poil. It's two separate worlds, words, worlds and words. Both this kayak and this pile. How many people die with frustrated potential? How many people die with pregnant ideas, with pregnant emotions that experience miscarriage in their psychological and emotional womb? Potential and actualization are two separate worlds. And there is a need for kayak to come out. But by the Rebbeinu Shalom, by Hashem, the koyach is as significant as the poil. The potential is as wholesome as the actualization. Which brings us to another question on this idea. And that is, okay, you want to express yourself. Beautiful. Why such a crazy world? Why such a crazy world? Why so much evil? Why so much destruction? Why so much horror? Why so many difficulties? That's how you express yourself. Give us a perfect novel. Give us a perfect piece of art. Give us a beautiful piece of art. And you did in so many ways. But this art is some schizophrenic piece of art. They say that there was once a Jew who uh, decided that he's cultured. You know Jews who decide they're cultured. He made a couple of dollars. So what are you doing? You have to hang up in your dining room and living room beautiful pieces of art. But not just art, modern art. Because when your friends come, they should go... So he goes, he goes in Soho, Manhattan. He looks for a store where they sell modern art. Now he knew about modern art less than I know about frogs in New Zealand. That's how much he knew about modern art. But he had to know about modern art. So he comes into the store... And he says, I need real modern art. 
the curator, the head, the, the, the expert, the connoisseur says, oh, do I have something for you? Something special. It was made recently. It's mummish, the cutting edge of modern art. He shows him the canvas. And what does he see? He sees a circle on the top, a triangle in the middle, a dot on the bottom. He says, what's this? He says, this is modern art, and this is $8 million. So $8 million for a triangle and a dot. And he says, you don't understand modern art. You're an idiot. You're a moron. It's not, it's what it represents. It's the dance between the empty space and the triangle and the color and the shadow. That's what modern art is. He dishes out the millions of dollars and he buys it. Next year he comes back. He says, who did I get compliments? It mamish elevated my status from a nobody into Mr. Cultured. This year I need something even more beautiful. He says, I have something for $16 million. He takes a look. And he sees there's something on the top corner. There's one more thing on the left corner. Everything else is blank. He says, well, what's this? He says, this is even more abstract. And this really speaks to the existentialist angst of the human soul, where space occupies much more significance than any substance. Buys the piece of art. Okay. And so the next year he comes back, he says, I have something for $20 million. What's $20 million? There's one dot in the middle. That's it. A black dot in the middle. $20 million. Shine. He buys it. Next year he comes back. Apparently his business was doing well. And he says, new, anything new? He says, yeah, I have a piece of modern art. It's not so expensive. It's $5 million. He takes a look. He sees there's a design on top. There's a design on bottom. There's a design in the middle. On the right side, on the left side, a few... The Jew says, nah, nah, nah. This is not for me. This is not for me. He says, why not? He says, This piece of art is too dirty. It's too messy. Okay. So we have an understanding that when you're dealing with a piece of art like the world, why so many problems? Why Why so messy? This, therefore, still keeps us somewhat in the dark as to the question of purpose. Now the Zoyar says this, Arizal says this. That means there is a component of absolute truth here. But it's not the full picture. If you want, you could put the question a little differently. Why create art with these people who laugh from you? With these people who spit at the art? With these people who throw it in the garbage? With these people who even deny that you made it? That's not how you express yourself. The Zoya says you want them to know you. Who knows you here? Who knows you here? You want to express your perfection? Express it fully. Not haphazardly. There's another explanation. This is what Arizal says in another place, in Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim Shar HaKlolim. Reb Moshe Kordovero, the Ramak, explains this in the Sefer Shir Koim and other Svarim. And many of the works of Kabbalah and Chakira explain this. The Emek HaMelech by Reb Naftali Bachrach, he was a student of Reb Yisrael Strugo, was a student of the Ariza. The Shemir Emunim by Reb Yosef Irgas, the rabbi of Levarna, was one of the great Mukabalim of his time. A student of the Rabbeinu Menachem Azariah Fano, who was a student of Reb Yisrael Strugo. Rabbeinu Menachem Azariah Fano in his Svarim. 
At great length, this answer is explored in the Svarim of the Ramchal. The Ramchal, Rabbeinu Moshe Chaim Lutzato, who lived in the 1700s and the 18th century, has many works, and in almost all of his works he discusses this. Derech Hashem, Masilus Yisharim, Das Tvunus, Klach Pischei In most of his works he discusses this quite at length. In works of Chassidus in many places you have this answer as well. Not for him, but for us. And they usually coin this answer in three words. To quote the Emek HaMelech, Teva HaToiv Lehetiv. God is good. And the nature of good is to do good, to bestow good. I think probably the earliest source for this explanation comes in a philosophy work known as Oyr Hashem by Reb Chizdoi Kraskis of Spain back in the 14th century. Teva HaToiv Lehetiv. What does this mean? He's toiv, he's good. The nature of good is to do good. That's the reason behind creation. That was the purpose of creation. To do good. Or, to quote the Yitzchayim Shara Klolim from the Ariza, why did he create the world? Lehetiv Libruov V'yakiru To do good to his creatures and they should recognize his truth, his greatness. In other words, there wasn't a need. There was no need. didn't have to express himself. There was no void. It's because he's good. The nature of good is that it wants to do good. In other words, it was created for us, not for him. Being good is more than self-expression. It's more than being an artist. An example, you can have an artist and you can have a philanthropist. Both give something to the world, but there's a big difference. The artist is driven by the urge to actualize his own talent. The philanthropist, I'm talking about an authentic philanthropist, not somebody who's giving for self-aggrandizement or to get honored or to get validation. As somebody once said, the best feeling in the world is to do something anonymously and then everybody finds out. But rather, a philanthropist who is driven by the need of others. I'm not driven by my need to give in order to get validation or attention or satisfaction or because I feel guilty or because I feel horrible or because I feel frustrated or because I want honor. But imagine the philanthropist who's driven not by his need to self-actualize, but by the need of others. He's not doing it for himself. What is the difference between the two? To the artist, the audience has no intrinsic worth. It's not about the audience. The audience is only an outlet for his art. That's the purpose of the audience. The philanthropist is concerned not with giving. He is concerned that someone should be receiving as I told you, there are many artists who made paintings, and they died that way. The main thing is, I expressed myself. The audience is simply a hechi timtza in the artist. It's a din in the artist. I don't care about the audience. I care about me, my expression. The real philanthropist, not about I should give. What's the point? I should give and throw it into, throw it into a pit. The point is Kabbalah. The point is somebody should receive I'm interested in you getting it, not in my expressing myself. If he's giving good, he wants, if he's giving food, he wants that the people who are hungry shouldn't be hungry. If he's providing education, he wants that people who are ignorant should not be ignorant. In other words, the recipient's world is is important to him. What do we gain from this perspective? 
this already deals with the need. If Hashem is good, it doesn't help for him to say, you know, if there were created beings, it would have been good for them, because I'm good. It's like a philanthropist saying, if I would give, it would be good. That doesn't make you a philanthropist. For them to have it, you got to give. It has to actually happen. They actually have to receive your nurture. They actually have to receive your flow, your hashpah. That is what being good is all about. Being good doesn't mean in potential, if I'll give you, it will be good because I'm good. That doesn't make me good. What makes me good is that you get the good. So according to these sources, the world came to be because of God's absolute goodness. Because He's good, therefore He does good. He wants to do good and He does good. In other words, it's not enough that He exists. It's not even enough that His infinite light exists and is expressed. There has to be a recipient who absorbs this light. The nature of good is to do good. Now the question is, what's the best thing He can do? What's the greatest good He can give? What's the greatest good He can provide? You say the nature of good is God is good? So He does good. He bestows goodness. What's that goodness? What's the greatest goodness? Chinese food? Broccoli and kale? Sushi? Money? Honor? What is the greatest good? The answer is, we're speaking about before creation, remember. There's only one reality. The only reality that exists is Hashem. There's only one definition of goodness, and that is the divine reality. So when you say the nature of good is to bestow good, to give good, and to give good to somebody else, that is what giving good means, bestowing good. Hashem is driven by this nature to give good to us, to the world. What is that goodness? The goodness is the opportunity to experience the ultimate goodness, which is God. The opportunity for the world, for others, to experience the only and ultimate goodness, which is the divine reality. In fact, the Ramak says that that's what the meaning of the Zoyar is. The Ramak says, when the Zoyar says, begin the Yishtamoidunle, he should be known. Why does he have to be known? Not to express himself. Because the ultimate good in life is to know him. He wants to be known because that's the greatest good he can give, that he should be known, he should be experienced. Now it's hard for us to understand, this is the greatest good? People define good, but there are many different ways. But this is the ultimate good? This takes work. It's hard for us to understand that this is the only real good. And as Ramchal always puts it, that's what people experience in Olam Haba. As the Gemara says in Brachas Yudzayin, Nenin Meziv Ashchina, they experience the ultimate pleasure of life. This is the real ultimate pleasure of life in this world and the next world. That's why he created the universe. According to this, they answer the big question, why is there a need for so much work in this world? Avoid. Because here you come to the next step. Okay. You want to do good, you want to bestow good, you're absolute goodness, and absolute goodness wants to give good. So give us good. Give us good. Here again, we're back to the question, why so fapachkit? 
make a beautiful world, a perfect world, and give everybody good. That's what goodness is. A philanthropist creates such a mess and such a crisis. But nothing is simple in this world. What happened with this Teva Tov So now we come to the next step in this answer. And that is, that somehow intrinsic to the purpose is, that the goodness doesn't just come on its own, doesn't just come easy. It comes through work. It comes through avoid. And it's not only because we have to fix something. Creation was designed that way. Adam Arishan is created in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. And what does the Pasuk say? It's not only a curse later, you have to sweat to eat bread. In the beginning, before any sins. He was placed in the Garden of Eden to work. The Jews are taken out of Egypt. Finally, they're a free people. You're going out of bondage for avoid, for avoid, for service, for work. Or the Pasuk in Eoiv, Adam Laamal Yulat. Person was born for toil. That's not good. How do you explain this? Teva give it to me. So all these sources, or many of these sources, say, there's one more step here. And this, fascinatingly, quite fascinatingly, is expressed actually in a halacha related to the science of botany. Yerushalmi, Talmud Yerushalmi, Masech Ta'arla, Perik Aleph, Halacha Gimel, discusses the following scenario. We know when you plant a tree, the first three years of produce are forbidden to eat or sell. They're known as arla. What happens if I have a tree, say I have a vine, and I graft, and I graft it, meaning I take a sill, I take a uh, branch of the vine, I put it in the earth, and I want to create a new tree. I want to create a new tree. Ultimately, is that, and then it starts growing. Is that mechuyev in Arla or not? Is that new tree obligated in Arla? Meaning, when it starts producing fruits, can I right away have the grapes? Or I have to wait three years? It comes from another tree, but it develops, it morphs into a new tree. So the Yerushalmi says, it depends. As long as the new tree is getting its nurture from the old branches, from the skena, from the old tree, from the original branches then it's not Arla, because it's just a continuum of the other tree. But the moment it starts developing on its own, it develops its own roots, it grows its own roots, and it starts getting its nurture from its own, now you have to keep the laws of Arla, because it's now an independent and autonomous tree. Now usually at some point, they sever the two, because it has roots, but they have to be secure, that it's independent. So in that middle stage, you're not sure that the new tree develop its own roots. Of course, if you take a look, you're going to destroy your tree. They didn't have the technology then to see. So how do you determine if you can eat the fruits of the new tree? You know the answer? I'm going to read you the words of the Yerushalmi, fascinatingly. Here you'll see where science, halacha, psychology, philosophy all converge. Rev Bibi says, B'Shem Reb Chanina. 
דבר בורי שהוא חי מכוייך הסקיינה. אם היו העלם הפוכים כלפי הסקיינה, דבר בורי שהוא חי מכוייך הילדו. If the leaves of this tree are turned towards the new one, the new young vine, you know that it's still living off the old one. But if the leaves are turned in the direction of the mother of the old one, you know that it's already living off the new one. Amar Rebuden Barchonin, Simone, you want to understand the Simon for this? The Ochel Min Chavrei Boyis Mistakelbe. When I'm eating somebody else's food, I'm embarrassed to look at him in the face. A person has a natural shame to constantly take and take and take and take and take and never reciprocate. I should say there are people who liberated themselves from this shame. <laughs> there are a few people, especially in certain places, but we're not going to go there at the moment. But the way man was created is, we have dignity. And what is our dignity expressed in? The fact that our greatest satisfaction comes through accomplishment. When I create it on my own and I deserve it, I own it. It's not a free lunch. To get free lunch once in a while is nice. To live off free lunch undermines people's dignity. It undermines dignity. It's not even enjoyable. The greatest enjoyment is you work for something and you create it with your sweat, with your blood, with your tears. You see it even in the world of botany. Understand, this new tree is getting nurture from the old tree. So what do the leaves do? They turn away. They're embarrassed to look. Because they know that all of their life they own to that one. They're independent, but they're not really independent. They're trying to be independent, but it's a game. But if they really are independent, then they could look at the old tree. They're thankful. This is my grandmother. This is my baba. This is where I come from. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. You know when you really do somebody a favor, they hate you? You ever had that experience? Somebody once said, when you do somebody a favor, give them little rocks. So when they start throwing rocks at you, it shouldn't hurt so badly. Sometimes, somebody once came to me, he says, this guy hates me. This person hates me. I don't know why. I never did him a favor. If I did him a big favor, I understand psychologically, it's very hard for people to accept it. So they have to say, oh, this person was a low life. He did it only for his own purposes. He's an egocentric, ulterior motives. It makes you feel better. You're on an equal, you're equal footing with them. You don't have to be grateful. He did it anyway for selfish reasons or any other psychological way that you somehow alleviate that sense of uh, frustration or avoid. Because people have that in themselves. That's how you know if this tree is mechoyev or not mechoyev That's why the Gemara says about Metziah Lamed Ches. The Mishnah says that if I deposit fruits by my friend, and my friend sees they're starting to rot, naturally he should sell them, you would think, right? Lo yigaben, don't touch them. Ask the Gemara, why not? Sell the fruits before they rot, and then you'll give them the money. What's the answer? Adam roitzeh bekav shaloi, yoisim etisha kav mshal a person cherishes one kav, one measure of his own fruits that he plowed and he planted and he worked hard than nine kabim of somebody else's fruits. Rashi says it's much more chaviv, it's much more cherishable for him. It's much more powerful for him. Therefore, if this is the case, we have a term that's known 
in any works of Kabbalah and Chkira and Chsidis, Nama de Chisufa, based on this Yerushalmi. Bread of shame. Bread of shame means it's bread, but it's shameful bread. I don't feel good about it because I have no dignity. I once had a very interesting story. I was on a plane with a man named Joseph Talushkin. Joseph Talushkin is a son, he's a famous author, and he's a son of a man named Reb Shloyme Talushkin, who was an accountant, who was a son of a Jew named Reb Nissen Talushkin, who was a famous Rav in New York, author of Tahar Asmayim, a big expert on mikvahs. Shloyme Talushkin, his father, Joseph Yosef's father, was an accountant for many years. He told me the story. In 1986, his father had a stroke. His father was a hard-working accountant. He was one of those Jews who 50 years went every single day to work without exception, made a decent living, was an innocent, honest man, and was very proud of the fact that he puts in a day of work and he generates his own revenue. He doesn't eat free lunch. He had a stroke. Okay, it was a pretty serious stroke. He was in the hospital. One of the people he was an accountant for, one of the institutions he was an accountant for was the secretariat of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. His son tells this to me, he says, I'm sitting in the hospital room with my father, and I'm looking at my father. It was a horrible scene. The telephone rings in the room, 1986. I pick up the telephone. Who's on the other side of the phone? A man named Rabbi Yehuda Krinsky, who was one of the secretaries of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he tells me, he says, the Rebbe was going through some of the bills at the end of the month. And he said, calls me and he says, there's a discrepancy here. There's something off. I say, okay, I'll look into it. The Rebbe says, why don't you call Shloyme Talushkin, our accountant, and let him figure it out. Ask him. So Rabbi Krinsky says, I'm calling you. Can I talk to your father? We have this discrepancy. Yosef, his son, tells this to me. He says, I was very annoyed. I say, Rabbi Krinsky, you know, as the Rebbe knows, that my father had a stroke last week. We notified the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He forgot. He wants my father now to do work. This is very strange. Rabbi Krinsky says, I know your father had a stroke. And the Rebbe knows your father had a stroke. So he says, why didn't you tell the Rebbe he had a stroke? Just because the Rebbe knows he had a stroke. But he sent me to your father. He says, how can he send you? He says, he asked, I should ask your father. I'm not going to start giving him education about that he had a stroke. He heard that he had a stroke. He said, okay. So what should I do? He says, ask. Rebbe said to ask him, ask. So he says, I went over to my father. And I thought, this is, this is really not humane even. And I go over with the, he came over, he sent over, he came over with the cheshboinus, whatever it was, he gave him on the telephone, or he came over. It was in New York, the Brooklyn, the hospital. And I go over to my father, or he goes over to my father, and he shows him everything. He's in bed. He shows him everything. He tells him about the discrepancy. And he says, the Rebbe looked at it and said, we should ask Shloyme Talushka. And he said, and suddenly, I saw a glitter. I saw a light in my father's eyes. And my father, his speech was affected. But he looked and he thought for a few minutes. And with such excitement, he says, I figured it out. And he gave the answer. He settled it. As he told me, it wasn't a very complicated issue. It was quite a simple issue. And he settled it. It was fine. So Rabbi Krinsky went away. And then I realized what happened. He says, what this did for my father, you can't even imagine. He worked his whole life. 
He was now in bed, debilitated, paralyzed, sick. He felt useless. He literally felt useless. But now with this question, he felt that he was needed. It gave him so much dignity in the illness, it literally prompted him and helped him recover and go back to his work. He said, I thought the Rebbe was asking the question because he wanted to know. And then I realized he was asking the question to help my father. A person needs dignity. And dignity comes when we create. Adam Reutzer, Therefore, in life, I have to give, not only take. Hence, Hashem is good. And goodness wants to bestow good and give good. But the question is, what's the ultimate good that you can give? I could just give. God could just create a perfect world and give everybody everything without any avoid out any work. But what would be missing then? That would ultimately be a flawed good, a blemished good. Because the relationship with Him would be one that you receive as a gift, not one that you work for. In our world, we have to work for the relationship. There are challenges, there are obstacles, there are failures, there are setbacks, there's trauma, there are questions, there are dilemmas, there are tests, there are difficulties on so many levels. Physical, financial, emotional, spiritual, religious, social, etc., etc. And my toiv, my goodness, my dveikus, my oneness with God, I have to create, I have to work for, but then it's mine. I'm not embarrassed. I could look at the tree. That's the ultimate good. That's why there is avoid. Ah, this brings us to another major question. This doesn't really work. Why doesn't it work? Why doesn't it work? This works between man and another man. Don't sell my fruits and give me money. I want my fruits. Because we have this nature. But here we're talking about the one who created the world. He created nature. He is the one who created the nature that we shouldn't be satisfied with free supper, lunch, and breakfast. Hashem could have created a different world. He could have created a universe where we're born like this. We're all born like this. Give, 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 give. And everybody's happy. Give, give me more, give me more. I do nothing. I sit like a couch potato. And I say, I'm here. Give, give, give. And if you work hard enough, you may be able to achieve that. Hashem could have created such a world. You're telling me, Teva, he wants to do good and give good, and the only real good is the good that you earn. That itself is a nature that He created in us. He could have created us with a nature that we don't earn anything, and it's still wonderful and good. So we're back to square one. You create this nature because you're good. What goodness is there in this? That everybody has to work and sweat and there's so many difficulties and challenges? So how does this solve anything? (laughs) So one of the answers for this that's given, this answer was actually presented by the Rebbe, Yud Aleph Nisan Tov Shun Lamed Beis, 11th of Nisan, 1972. He said as follows. The explanation in this answer that's given in Eitzchayim and the Sifri Kabbalah and Chira is as follows. 
the ultimate good we said is what? A relationship with Hashem, who is the definition, only definition of goodness. That is goodness. So the ultimate good that you can have is that you're connected, you're one with God. But what does it mean to be connected? You could be connected and you could become one. What's the difference? Hashem wanted the ultimate goodness for the world. The ultimate goodness for the world is not only that humanity, that you and I, should be able to reach the goodness of being connected to God as a created being, as a nivra, but rather He wanted we should be able to experience full intimacy and oneness with Him. In other words, we should graduate the status of nivra, of being created, and Yisrael, the kuchabrichu kulechad, become one, become like boire, become like creator. Or as the Medrash puts it in Parshas Vayechi, Yaakov says, Shimu el Yisrael avichem, repinches oimer, keil Yisrael avichem, ma'akadosh baruchu boireilamus, af avichem boireilamus. Just like God creates worlds, your father creates worlds. Or as the Gemara says in Shabbos Kofiates, you say vayichulu on Friday evening, nasa, shutif la'akadosh baruchu, b'maiseberashis. You become a partner to God in the creation of the world. What does this mean? If Hashem would have created us with the nature that we should be satisfied with receiving, then what would life look like? God gives and we take. We take from Him, we feel Him, we experience Him, but always as mekablim, as recipients. The greatest toiv is not only that you receive from the divine, but that you become divine-like. You become one with the divine. You become a shutif. What's a real shutif? A real partner? The Rajput says a real partner is not 50 50. Real partnership means every part of the business is owned by both. You're equals. You're not a receiver, you're a creator. You're a mashpia, just like Hashem. Hashem is not a recipient, Hashem is a giver. He creates the worlds. If the nature would have been that we would be satisfied with receiving, that is where the relationship would end. He gives, we take. Is it good? It's good. But it's not the ultimate oneness. There's always this infinite gulf between giver and taker. And therefore Hashem imbued us with that nature that we should be not satisfied with taking. We should feel the urge to create, to create our destiny, to forge our future, to define our lives. To create just like He creates. And that's how we experience oneness with Him. Through creating our life, by making choices, by challenging what we have to challenge, by subduing darkness, by confronting strife, by transforming anxiety, etc., etc. Everybody in their own life and in their own challenges. And now it's real toiv. Now you're not just experiencing the toiv as a nivra, as a created being. You're experiencing the toiv, the goodness, as a... Boide as a creator. That's a whole different experience. That's the ultimate good. This explains, people say, people have so many, every person, every person, you wake up in the morning, there's dilemmas, there's challenges, there's emotional stuff people go through. Every person 
sitting here, not sitting here, listening, not listening. We each have our challenges. And things are difficult. Torah is difficult. Mitzvahs are difficult. Serving God is difficult. Raising a family is challenging. Just being half normal is difficult. Never mind being happy and wholesome and meaningful and dealing with all your stuff. This is teva, toiv lehetiv. Every step of the game, there's another setback, another failure, another issue, and it's like layers of an onion. You peel one layer, there's a new layer, and then there's people who don't have it so hard, but then there's people who really have it hard, and they say, where's good? Where's teva toiv lehetiv? There's no easy answer for this. And when it comes to emotional pain, the prerequisite is always empathy. But there's an idea that is explained here. And the idea here is, yes, it could have all been given to you. You could have sat. God could have said, sit back, relax, and enjoy my show. But you're a spectator. But God is not a spectator. God is a player. They say there are three types of people. There are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen. And there are those who want to know what happened. In every community, right? There's always the guy who comes the next day. What happened? And he always asks it to the guy who made it happen. I could sit back and watch. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But the greatest toiv in the world is not that you receive from Hashem. That you become divine. You become divine like that. You are divine. As the Pesach says in the earth. What does it mean you're divine? You're divine means you're not a victim. You're not a recipient. You forge ahead. You create. You are a boire oilemis. You create your world just like God creates the world for us. So we become shutfim lakadish baruchu. He creates the world, but without the partner, nothing is complete. It's like some people make a company, but they don't have a partner, and it's a gate gleich in the erd. That's what God's world looks like. What's Vayichulu? You have a world without Shabbos. It's a beautiful world. Take a look at the world. Listen to the news. A Jew comes and says, Vayichulu in Erev Shabbos, meaning he introduces harmony. He introduces oneness. He introduces light. He introduces meaning, purpose, godliness, goodness, holiness. Now the project is working. He has a partner. Who becomes the partner? You and I. You and the divine together create life, create the world. That's the ultimate goodness. Not to make people recipients. To make people divine. That's the greatest achdus you can have. You don't remain a mekabel. You have the shleimus not of nivra but of boire. Not the perfection of being created but the perfection of Kivayachal being a shutaf, being a creator. I have to tell you a letter that I once saw. All these stories are coming into my mind. It left a deep impression on me. Also happens to be 1986. I happened to see the letter. There was a boy, a Jewish boy, who wrote a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that he's suffering from homosexual tendencies. In 86, this wasn't spoken about so much like today. He wrote a very long letter, full of anguish and pain. What to do about it? Why? Why did this happen to him? Not his choice. 
on his truce. One day he wakes up and he experiences himself different than all other boys. The natural inclinations that most boys have, he does not have. He has opposite inclinations. The Rebbe wrote him back a three-page letter. 86. I saw the letter. A long letter. He gives him advice. He gives him counsel. expresses a lot of uh, empathy and compassion. But I want to address one point. He says, you asked me why. The Rebbe says, I don't know. Which itself is impressive. Today a lot of rabbis, they know everything. They know everything. Why? Oh, of course, right? We know everything. Especially when it comes to somebody else. He says, I don't know. I'm not God. I don't have God's mind. I don't know how he runs the world. Why? I don't know why you have to deal with this. But then he says, but I want to make a point that is relevant to all of us and may also be relevant to you. And he takes this point and he brings it home in a very powerful way. And I'm going to explain the point that the Rebbe made to this teenager, this young man, who complained, lamented about this struggle that he had in his own intimate life. This is what he said. It's very possible that you have in yourself tremendous power and an infinite light that is embedded deep, deep in your soul. It's there and it's incredibly powerful and forceful. It can change the world. It can have a tremendous impact and influence. But here is the the deal. In our world, these things are not given to us on a platter. We have to find them, excavate them, discover them, and bring them out through our own work, through our own avoidance. It's the whole system of creation. La'avda ulashamra. Adam la'amal yulat. You have to create yourself. You have to find who you are and bring out your light. And here's the problem. This light is so big and it's so deep. And the question God asks is, how is this man going to even know it exists? Because you could live your whole life and never really figure out who you are. Sometimes he gives a person a challenge that is very profound. And for the person to overcome the challenge, they can't just live a regular life. They have to dig deep, deep into their psyche in order to unleash their deepest powers in order to confront this challenge. They can't just live a mediocre, monotonous life and just move on with the day because they have a very serious challenge. To confront this challenge, they have to be ready to expose themselves to their true, authentic nature. They have to get into the deepest parts of themselves and actualize it. They have to figure out who they really are and they have to discover all of their inner resources. And in that process, they discover this infinite light that they were blessed with. And I thought to myself, often we meet people, I mean ourselves or others, with various challenges. One way of looking at it is empathy. That's proper. Empathy is appropriate. But there's something far 
there's somebody equally significant and sometimes far more significant. And that is, don't just empathize. Empower. What he did for this boy was, he didn't just say, I'm so, so, so sorry, I'm here for you. If you need to talk to me, write again or come talk to me and I'm going to pray for you and think about you. That's step one. That's important. But something much more significant. And that is, and I'm here going to go a step two and then to step three. Step two is some people don't have compassion at all. They're very cold. They're very cold-blooded. Some people have compassion. Some people have empathy. But some people have empathy and they turn the person into a Rachmanis case. You know those people? Nebach. 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 And it sounds like you're a great person. You know, you're Nebaching all over the place. Nebach for her. Nebach for him. Nebach. 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 It sounds like you're such a Rachman. You're such a person of Chesed. Because all day you're talking about the Nebach cases. That's not nice. <laughs> That's not nice. That really means that I'm completely detached from the whole purpose of existence. There's no nebach. The Rebbe could have told this boy, you're such a nebach case, I'm going to daven. He probably did daven for him, I'm sure he did. I think he even wrote at the end of the letter that. But his, what he gave this boy was he empowered him. He says, I don't look at your challenge and say, you're a loser and I don't know why God makes losers. Or you're Nebuch a victim of a horrible, horrible Yetzirah, and I don't know what to do, but you could do music Mizgaber. No, he said, you don't understand. What I see in your challenge is your infinite greatness. That's what I see. I don't see you being Nebuch in such a lowly, horrible state. I see you as an incredibly powerful person whose path to greatness must go through these challenges. That's how you look at a person. Doesn't minimize the challenge. Doesn't minimize empathy. But what it does is it looks at a challenge, whether it's mental, emotional, spiritual, psychological, physical, practical. Doesn't minimize it. You're not cold. You're not indifferent. And you're not an expert who has all the reasons. You see it for what it is. But your great contribution is you help the person see themselves as a boire, not as a nivra. As a yoitzer, not as a yitzur. As a mashpia, not as a mekabel. As a creator, not as a victim. You help the person see that he or she is a prince of God. A piece of God. One. And therefore, you create. You're the boy that you create. You're the partner. He gives you what you need to create. Yes, without him you can't create anything. <laughs> Go create. You need him, of course, to create. It's with his koyach and his sayata deshmai, but you're the creator because he wants complete oneness. And with this, he gave the boy back his soul. But does this really answer the question? <laughs> does this answer the question why God created the world? I mean, come on. Who said? It's the nature of good to do good. Maybe not. Who made that nature? Who made this rule? The rule of good is to do good. Generally, what's the definition of good? 
Why are you defining God as good? Who made that definition? Me? You? God himself? Why? Is he beyond that definition? Is he defined by it? Even if you want to call him good. Who said, we say, the nature, if I'm a good person, I want to see you have good. I got it. If I'm a ish toiv, if I'm a ish chesed, I want, you should have food, you should have knowledge, you should have inspiration. I got it. That's a nature that was created. So we say, once that nature was created, God has to create the world. Not because he has to, but because the nature of toiv is that this is what he does. This is what he chooses to do. But I ask you, isn't this nature also created by him? So why did he create this nature which then compels him to create the world? Don't create the nature and don't make a world. And I go back to Zalman Ashik, But there's also one big question here, another question, and that is really? The nature of good is to bestow good. So that's why you created the world, because you wanted everybody and everything to have good. And what's good? Good is oneness with you. And I ask you, how many people in this room finish my question? Achieve this goal. How many people experience oneness with God? How many people even know that God exists? How many people even know what it means to know that God exists? How many people ever experienced vacas and got intimacy with God? So you could say again, like Ram Khalov saying, it's Ilam Abba. But we're living in this world. Create Ilam Abba and stop there. No problem. But you created this world because you wanted to challenge. You shouldn't be bred of shame. But it's a funny, interesting situation that in this whole lifetime, so few of us can experience this. Is this really the full picture? Isn't this missing something? And why is it so hard to achieve this oneness? I understand you don't want free lunch, okay? Do I have to work and work and work and work and work? It's the other extreme. Let's relax a little bit. I understand I have to earn it and generate it. But so many challenges and so many difficulties. Is this the full picture? So I'm going to quote the Rambam. The Rambam, who lives in the 1100s, in Spain, in Morocco, in Eretz in Egypt, has a safe in Meir Nevuchim, the guide for the perplexed. Chapter 3, chapter 13. The Rambam asks the question, why did God create the world? And I have to quote you his words and his answer. What does the Rambam say? The Rambam says, I'm going to quote. It's written in Arab. The Rambam wrote it in Arabic, but I'm quoting the translation of Ibn Tibun. God doesn't become more perfect if we serve Him and we get Him. We understand Him. He won't have a void if nobody else exists. He won't be bored and lonely and depressed. So you're going to tell me that the world is for our perfection. What's the purpose of we being perfect? What's the purpose? So we're perfect. And if we're not perfect, if we don't have this, if He doesn't create us and we don't have this good, okay, so we don't have it. We're not here even to not to have it. It's not like we're here and we don't have it, so we're deprived. And God says, He creates us in order to give us this good. Don't create us. We don't need anything. We don't have it. Vehechrechihu, says the Rambam. It's necessary. Sheyistayim hadavar. Bematan hatachlis. That the conclusion of this conversation about giving purpose to the world is, what's the conclusion the Rambam says? Three words. 
Kain Ratzah Hashem. That's what God wanted. Oi, maybe. That's what his wisdom dictated. You see the two things he's saying? Either he wanted this, or this is what his wisdom dictated to do. And this is the true answer. You'll find that in the davening of Yom Kippur, what do our sages say? You separated the human from the beginning of creation to serve you. You know why? Because who tells you what to do? You do what you want to do. There's no purpose outside of his desire. So you tell me, what was the purpose? The Rambam says this is what he wanted. Why did he want it? The Rambam says, this is what he wanted. Why? If you can talk to him, talk to him. He wanted it. This was wisdom. Was it rots and chachma? The Rambam gives two options. This is what the Rambam says. No, he says, that's it. To put it in simple English, if you would ask God, why did you do this? Say, None of your business. None of your business. That's what the Rambam says. Tell you an interesting story. Story we hear we have Mamish from the first almost the first source. Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yosef Doiv Halevi Soloveitchik, was the son of Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, who was the pchayr of Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik. Rabbi Chaim Brisker was the son of the Beis Halevi, Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik. Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik once in a shir, nineteen seventy three, said that he heard this story from Rabbi Simchazelig. You know who Rabbi Simchazelig was? Rabbi Simchazelig Riger was the Dayan of Brisk in Lithuania. Reb Chaim was officially the Rav of Brisk, but he didn't like the Paskin. Reb Simchazelig, Reb Simchazelig, he was known as Reb Simchazelig the Dayan. He was murdered by the Germans, I believe, right? Like the whole of Brisk, the community of Brisk in Lithuania. He was the Dayan of Brisk. Reb Yosheber Salavej, Reb Chaim's grandson said that Reb Simchazelig once told him this story. They once went to Vilna. He said it a few times and I saw it in different versions. I'm just telling you one of the versions. So if you'll email me another version and you'll tell me it's a contradiction, I know. There's three versions of the story. I can't say three, I'm telling you one. It says they went to Vilna. And they visited the house, this is what he says, of a Chabad Chassid, Reb Chaim and Reb Chazelik. And the Balabai is the host. He wasn't there yet, they were waiting for him. So they were looking, Reb Chaim was looking at the Svarim in the house. He came across a sefer of Chabad Chassidus, the Mogen Ovis. The Mogen Ovis is a book, it's not in the dynasty of Chabad, of the Kapuster. Tzamech Tzedek had a grandson, a son who became the Kapuster Rebbe, and his son made a sefer called Mogen Ovis. And Reb Chaim was looking through the sefer. And there he brings the two reasons discussed earlier about creation. For him or for us. The Pasuk is called Payal Hashem Lamaneu. The Mishnah says, Call Mashabara Kadush Baruch Hubay Lamale Bari Elah. Lechvoidoi, Pirkeyavis, for his glory, for his honor. That, that realm. And then he brings the second reason of Teva Hatoiv Lahetiv for us, for our goodness. He wants to give us good, he wants we should have good. That means he can't be himself. He creates a world to give good. 
Reb Chaim is looking and he turns to Reb Simcha Zelig and he says, the emiss is Nishdviyer or Nishdviyer? The emiss is Loy Lefiza or Loy Lefiza? Not according to him, not according to him. Nisht Lefi Kvaidoi, Nisht Avur Kvaidoi, or Nisht Avur Tuvoi. Not because of his glory and not because of his goodness. Vos, Sulibrit Soinoi. Not for his glory, not for his goodness, for his will, for his desire. This was his desire. Shai. Yoshebe said, Yabchayim nu moire nevuchim by heart. Yabchayim nu moire nevuchim by heart. In Chidush Rabbi Nechayim Alevi Alaramam, you don't see this. Yabchayim is brisk, Yabchayim is litter. But you understand when somebody is in love with somebody, you read all of their books. So Reb Chaim wouldn't not pick up a Meir Nevuchim. In fact, if you're familiar with the group of the Malachim, anybody hears from the Malachim? We have, I think, a few Malachim here. <coughs> so today they're already becoming mentioned. But there was a time, there was this group of Malachim, it's a whole group in Williamsburg, their founder was a man named Avram Doiv Levin. He passed away in 1935. So he was from Chabad, and then he created his own group known as the Malachim, the Angels. A very interesting, a whole interesting history. It's not for now. Reb Chaim Brisker once visited him in Europe. He visited him, and uh, they were discussing the Marin of Uchim. So when the Baruch Ber was here, the Baruch Ber Leibovich, the Birch Shmuel, the Roshiva of Kamenitz, was a student of Reb Chaim. When he was here, he went to Reb Avram Doiv. He said, my Rebbe went to him. He went to see him. And he discussed with him the Marin of Uchim. So the Roshabeth said, My Zaydin knew the Marin of Uchim by heart. What he was saying was from the Marin of Uchim. Not his glory and not his goodness. Those are needs that exist once you create the need. A natural need, a voluntary need, but a need. He wants. So now I ask you a question where does this leave us? In some ways, it's a sobering thought. It's like, might have. <laughs> why, 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 why? None of your business. Might have. Go on with your life. He created the world because he wanted to create the world. You can understand why the B'chaim Brisk appreciated that. As he once said, Mirfreginisht Farvos, Mirfreginvos. Our job is, we don't ask why, we ask what. I don't have to know why, I just want to know what you said, not why you said it. The question is what? What? Torah mitzvahs. Why? Leave it for the philosophers. It's a sobering thought, and sometimes it's a good thought for people. It's a good thought. Again, a story comes into my mind. I know Ayid, he lives in Pittsburgh, his name is Reb Label. He was a campus, university, secular Jewish student. He started to get close to Yiddishkeit. In the early 70s or the late 60s, he told this to me. He went in for a yechidus, for an audience to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said he wants to ask a question. He says, go ahead. He says, I don't understand. There are six billion people in the world. You're going to tell me that God, who's infinite, chose 13 million people, it's not even a quarter of 1% of humanity, and they're the chosen people. So explain to me logically, why would God do such a thing? Just explain it to me. So he says, the Rebbe looked at me, 
And he said, it's none of your business. <laughs> Why don't you just do your job as a Jew and light up the world? So the truth is, I, was, I thought I'm going to hear an answer, you know, be able to make a shear from it. <laughs> none of your business. I mean, you know what I mean? I said, how did you take to it? I mean, he wasn't even a religious. He said, it was the smartest answer the Rebbe could have given me. I say, why? He said, because he saw who I am. My brain doesn't stop. I don't look for answers. I look for questions. And every quest answer has another question. You know that. The argument would have gone, 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 gone. So he said, instead of we arguing for the next five hours, let's get to the end. At the end, the man anyway is going to tell you it's none of your business. Isaiah Debrish to Gewalt. That's what he wanted. So let me tell it to you now. There was once a Shulai Davin, and whenever you hung, a lot of people, whenever you hung up a coat, you never found it on the hook. Either you found it somebody else's hook, or somebody else was wearing it, or on the floor usually. So there was once a Yid, he came in, I see he goes before Mairev, he takes off his coat, he folds it up, and he puts it on the floor. Somebody says, why are you putting it on the floor? What do I have to go hang it and then get disappointed? Put it on the floor. So you have to go to the end of the answer. Sometimes it's a sobering thought. I can't figure everything out. That's true. But now, <laughs> despite Reb Chaim, <laughs> or in continuation to Reb Chaim, the question is, where does this leave us? Is there a relationship between his will and us? Which is going to bring us to the second part of this discussion, the way this question and dilemma is treated in the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev and his students, particularly in the works of the Baal Hatanya and his students, as we will explore Be'ezer Hashem next week, next Thursday. Have a wonderful week. Huh? Can I push it today for you? Can I have a little bit of as is Ovelin. As Ovelin. So I feel as Ovelin. As Ovelin, managed. I will, what's that for Ovelin? That's for Ovelin. I will. 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 I so what's that's what he's asking? What's Ratzin is there? What Ratzin means you're looking for something. Yeah, have a Ratzin. I want to go to sleep. I want to eat. I want to talk to you. Yeah. That's what he's asking. That Gufa. In other words, forget why there's a Ratzin. The very union of Ratzin is good. 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 A good question. You can email me. I'll send you the letter. Yyy Jacobson at theyeshiva.net. Thank you so much. You'll remember. If you email me, I'll send you a copy of the letter.
Thank you. Thank you. Now you're asking if you're anywhere at the end saying there's no answer. So what do you have all these answers? Does I should just say we don't know? None of your business. None of your business. So I get to my son. None of your business. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.